This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Good to be with you. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hi. A historic summit in Israel this week between the Jewish state and four Arab nations took place. It marks a continuing revolution in relations among these Middle Eastern states, To learn about this, we'll turn to Brent. Yeah, there was a really important meeting that took place in southern Israel in the Negev Desert at a place called Sedboker. And this is where the foreign ministers of Israel, Egypt, Bahrain, Morocco, and the United Emirates all joined together in Israeli territory. This is the first time the foreign ministers of uh, United Arab Emirates and Bahrain uh, have come to Israel. So this is very significant. And they were they were meeting also with um, United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken as well. And so this was a summit for a couple of days. Um, the Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid talked about that this summit, the so-called so-called Negev uh, summit, would become a permanent forum. Uh, he said that it was building a new regional architecture based on progress, technology, religious tolerance, security, and intelligence cooperations. And then he specifically called out the reason for this this warming relationship between all of them. And the main object on uh, the dis- for discussion was the movements by Iran and its proxies in the region. All of these nations coming under threat by the Iranians, especially the Israelis. And here they are working together for the first time. I mean, this is Israel. We have Israel working together with uh, Egypt and Israel working together with Jordan in the past. But now we've got three other Arab states that have joined in in the form of Bahrain, UAE, and Morocco. And these are all nations that signed on to the Abraham Accords that were really the crowning foreign policy achievement of President Trump's four year in office. Um, and, you know, you see over 200,000 Israelis flying to the UAE in the past year. And now you see the foreign ministers of some of these Arab states coming to Israel to embrace the Israelis. It's uh, quite interesting to see this going on, even as the um, administration in the United States has changed, obviously, and you have someone in power who's not nearly as interested in trying to check Iran. But checking Iran really is the driving factor here in uh, what's happening among these states, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. And this is what a number of people are noting. There's this article in The Telegraph from today, Biden is intent on wrecking Trump's one clear foreign policy success. And it's basically talking about how Biden... Uh, is Biden's representative was there in the room, but it was almost like he was an additional feature um, that wasn't really intent on furthering the the goals in the ambition of these other, uh, well, these five other, five other states. All these others are there because of uh, Iran's rise and basically because of what the United States is doing. Uh, this is what uh, the Telegraph wrote. 
they said this, the spate of terrorist attacks inside Israel, killing 11 people so far, coincided with the extraordinary diplomatic and security rapprochement between the Israelis and key Arab states. They are forming a security pact against the common threat of terrorism, much of it sponsored, uh, all of it applauded by Iran and Tehran's own growing military power. And then it goes on to talk about the fact that Antony Blinken was there as well, but he was just an observer. He wasn't a key player in this issue. Israel, they write, and its new partners were cooperating despite the Biden administration rather than because of its sponsorship. And so it it talks about how uh, they're striking this new alliance without the Americans. Of course, this was midwifed by the Trump administration, and the Telegraph doesn't give uh, him that much um, that much credit. But now it's like you know the 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 all these other states are looking to themselves for security and wondering you know what's going to happen with the United States. They look like they're supporting the the Iranians. They're ready to go with a new Iran deal that's going to make the whole region more dangerous. And here is Blinken sitting at the same same table as all these nations that are going to be on the receiving end of a nuclear deal pushed by Iran. So there's really a couple of strands of this story that are uh, important to talk about. One is the fact that you have such a uh, concern over Iran's rise among these Middle Eastern states that they are willing to cooperate with Israel in order to uh, avoid or to, to better check this uh, this rising threat in the Middle East. They recognize that making peace with their historic enemy and even among their populations, there's still a whole lot of antipathy for the Jewish state. But uh, checking Iran is more important. Uh, maybe we could just discuss that briefly to uh, to start. Yeah, if you look at these states, uh, I mean, Morocco might be, well, actually, Morocco has been under attack by Iranian proxies too. So I think all of them have been very worried that Iran, well, they're very aware that Iran is a, a a state that exists to export or or project power outside of its nation. It doesn't believe in national borders. It believes that it, it needs to expand. It should expand. Uh, territory that was once belonging to, to the Muslims always should belong to them. And they're going to lead the jihad for that. And so Unless they, unless you jump on board with Iran, if you're an Arab state, then you're finding yourself on the receiving end of Iran's proxies. And so the UAE has been a victim. Saudi Arabia is increasingly a victim, and they're looking up, looking around and saying, "Well, who's got the def- who's a strong partner that can help us in countering Iran?" It used to be that the United States would do that, but now they see Israel as being a viable alternative for the moment. Because uh, they view Israel not as a threat towards their own security, um, they don't like Israel, but they need Israel's support. They need Israel's uh, weaponry, Israel's intelligence, um, and so a strategic partnership makes sense when they see Iran being supercharged with potentially nuclear weapons, and then also uh, all this money that they're going to win with this nuclear deal to 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 purchase and use and develop uh, conventional weaponry as well. And so they're leaning leaning on a, a leaning on Israel for help with that security. 
So in the other side of this, you think about Israel um, making peace with these states. And first of all, there's you mentioned the, the uh, irrelevance of America's role in the region. In a sense, uh, Israel is continually and, and increasingly being thrown in this position where it has to find other allies uh, in order to replace the void left by uh, America, and you can view what it's doing here in um, in that respect. Uh, at its most basic level, you see it also going to Germany and to Europe and so on. But this this uh, push to have these um, these relations with these Arab states is also part of that. Yeah, for sure. I think they're in the immediate firing line, and Europe so far has been pretty unwilling. Uh, to help out Israel, they've been there at the table as well you know, with these nuclear deals, you know, nuclear talks with Iran. Um, and so Israel doesn't see Europe as a strategic partner just yet. And so, I mean, they don't have too much choice about who they're going to look to. And Israel's just happy, <laughs> kind of naively, I think, to accept uh, any type of support from an Arab state, thinking this is the new, you know, Sadat Begin uh, peace deal. And this, while that is to be lauded. And I think any overtures to put towards a peace with Israel are to be lauded. You can't forget that this is purely um, a relationship of convenience pushed by Iran and pushed by Ira uh, the United States backing Iran. And this, in terms of biblical prophecy, is a danger for Israel because you do see a prophecy, we spoke about this last week in Psalm 83, where you have a number of Arab states that are going to side with, with Germany. Um, and these are the same Arab states that Israel's partnering right now. And that prophecy talks about how that alliance of Psalm 83 with Europe eventually, we don't really see too much of that just yet, but Europe being involved with these Arab states that Israel's partnering with right now, they, they do um, turn their back on Israel. They're actually... Uh, the prophecy there talks about they've got a confederacy against Israel. They take crafty counsel against Israel. The prophecy indicates that Israel is going to think that this alliance of the Arab states and Europe is going, are friendly towards Israel. Perhaps it is a security pact to the point that Israel is actually going to be fighting alongside these, these people uh, or these nations. And the Bible says that's dangerous. We wrote an article about this, or Mr. Gerald Flurry did back in January, 2021. It's called the deadly flaw in mid East peace deals. These very peace deals that, that, uh, that, uh, president Trump was enacting and that we see coming together. Now this past week, there is going to be a, a sad ending for Israel because they're trusting in the power of these other Arab states in this security and not looking to God for that. The deadly flaw in Mideast peace deals. We'll link to that. We'll also have a, an article that Brent wrote a couple of years ago, Why the Arabs Embrace the Jews. Uh, you can find links to those in the show notes for today's program. Thank you very much for that, Brent. To Ukraine now, Russia's attack continues, and we'll get the latest from Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, we've just entered into the sixth week of Russia's war of aggression on Ukraine, and I wanted to go through some of the confirmed numbers that have begun coming in. As of yesterday, 4.1 million Ukrainians have fled the country. That's uh, nearly 10% of the total population. And then another 6.5 million have been displaced within Ukraine, so driven from their homes, but still inside the country. So it is the largest refugee crisis 
that Europe's seen since World War II. And unlike other major displacements, this has all happened in basically one month's time. So just the, you know, the pace of this is just stunning. And then the total civilian casualty number may now be as high as 6,200, with the majority of those in Mariupol. Uh, Some of this data hasn't yet been independently verified, but it looks like at least 200 of those civilian deaths are children as well. So this is wreaking major havoc on the Ukrainian people. And then there's also the infrastructure. So far, Russia has destroyed, damaged, or seized seven major power plants, eight airports, 138 healthcare institutions, 378 schools, and more than 4,000 residential buildings. And um, it's Ukraine's eastern regions that have been hit hardest by this. In in Mariupol, for example, uh, more than 80% of their total infrastructure has now been destroyed. So as this war continues on, all of these figures we just keep seeing these go up and up, and, and it's it's really hard, I think, to comprehend just how ruthless and devastating this is all becoming. So what signals are you uh, seeing about where this may proceed? There's obviously a lot of pressure on um, on Putin on, on both sides to uh, to bring this to an end, to find some kind of a uh, peaceful resolution. What do you see? Well, this week we we saw a couple of interesting developments. One of these was uh, just yesterday, Putin signed a decree ordering 134,000 new conscripts into the Russian army. So these are Russian men between the ages of 18 and 27 that are being drafted. Uh, The Russian Ministry of Defense said that these conscripts will not be sent to any hotspots. But over the last few weeks, Russian President Vladimir Putin has on on numerous occasions assured the Russian people that only professional soldiers and officers had been sent to Ukraine. And then it was later, you know, confirmed multiple times that a great number of the forces there actually were conscripts. So it's very hard to say where exactly these new draftees will go. Um, But it comes at a time that could really help Putin to fill in some big gaps that have, you know, kind of resulted from the casualties. A country at war that is recruiting Hundred thousand, hundred thirty-four thousand new soldiers. You you don't look at this as being too unrelated, <laughs> right? Exactly. And even if it's just because some troops have been taken from, say, the border with with China or or with North Korea, you still have to fill in those locations unless you want to be vulnerable to attack in in other places. Um, but then this week we also saw Russia start to reframe its at least its stated objectives in the war. There was a statement from the defense ministry saying that Russia never intended to take the capital city or other major cities, and that Russian forces had only ever really been deployed around those places in order to tie up Ukrainian forces, while Russia's main forces in the, you know, the southeast of Ukraine could better focus on their true goal of conquering those areas. So it's, it's kind of an odd switch that we've seen there. And we know that it's not true from um, intelligence and from even from Russian documents that were leaked early in the war, showing that Putin's goal was to take the capital in a very rapid campaign. So this new kind of reframing, uh, it has been accompanied by a drawdown of some of the Russian forces that were around Kiev and other cities. So it may well be that Putin is just kind of explaining things now as kind of a safe, you know, a, a face saving measure since the resistance that he encountered was beyond what he expected. He also might just be trying to buy time with this lie 
while he plans to switch tactics to maybe something more focused on air power and more shelling cities from a distance with rockets and uh, artillery. So it's hard to really know what to make of that. But in either case, it appears to mark some sort of a shift in Putin's strategy. You know, we're finishing our new edition of the the print magazine, the, the Trumpet, the May-June edition, and uh, Ukraine takes up most of the magazine. Uh, and there are a few articles in there by Gerald Flurry where he's looking at the big picture and how this event really is driving several biblical prophecies forward. In a lot of ways, you look at what is happening here, and it truly does vindicate the prophetically informed analysis that the trumpet has been making for several years now. That's exactly right. Yes, uh, it, it was back in 2008 that Vladimir Putin attacked his first former Soviet nation. That was the Republic of Georgia. And just after that attack, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry said that was, quote, the first strike of a rising Asian superpower and the start of a dangerous new era for the world. So this attack in 2008, it, it only lasted six days. And the regions that Russia went into in Georgia, they were pretty pro-Russia anyway. So in some ways, it didn't really get much of the world's attention. And some, you know, some trumpet readers may have thought that was perhaps overstating things a little bit to call that an inflection point and the start of a dangerous new era. But in the 14 years since that was written, this forecast has proved to have been accurate in, you know, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Kazakhstan. Uh, and now it's most glaringly clear, I think, in Ukraine. The world is in a dangerous new era, thanks to Russian aggression. And we can look back now and see that that attack on Georgia was uh, just a major milestone. And it was the start of this this new uh, epoch that we're in. And in that article that Mr. Fleury wrote, he explains that his forecast was all based on Bible prophecy. He goes through the specific passages that he based it all on. So that's, you know, that's an older article by this time. But in many ways, I think it's more relevant now than ever. Well, we'll link to that article, Russia's Attack Signals Dangerous New Era. We really do appreciate you keeping us apprised of all of the latest developments over there, Jeremiah, as we watch that story. Thank you. William and Catherine of the British royal family finished up a tour of the Caribbean this week, and there were several troubling signs for uh, believers in the British Commonwealth. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, they finished their Caribbean tour on March 27th, having visited Belize, Jamaica, uh, and the Bahamas. All three of these countries are Commonwealth uh, realms. And in fact, the Caribbean as a whole is you know, both very important to the Commonwealth and very important just generally, especially to the United States and, and the uh, security of the United States. Many of these areas that they were visiting were some of the most valuable parts of the British Empire initially. Uh, and so I think you know, what goes on here is, is of concern with anyone interested in the future of the Commonwealth and the future of the, the monarchy. Eight out of 15 of the Commonwealth realms are located in and around the Caribbean Sea. Uh, but I think there's also this region is just intrinsically important to the United States as well. You know, the majority of the United States' overseas trade comes and goes through its uh, through the Gulf of Mexico. So having that with countries with links to a friendly power like the UK as opposed to an unfriendly power like China uh, is something that is just very significant geopolitically. So throughout this tour, it was uh, it felt very different watching the images, watching the footage from this trip. 
uh, it does really seem remarkable how quickly things have changed with the royal family. You know, typically, I, you're used to seeing these trips and you're just used to seeing you know, the members of the royal family greeted by smiling members of the, of the public, smiling politicians, uh, carefully managed photo ops, this kind of thing. And, and then even maybe impromptu gestures that, uh, that are maybe even more photogenic than the, than the official photo ops, but it's all very positive. This was much less so. A lot of the footage was more about people protesting the royal family. About 100 prominent individuals and organizations signed an open letter to Prince William that was delivered during the trip. And this talked about slavery. It, uh, it raised demands for reparations. Uh, and then when they met with the Jamaican prime minister, he basically implied that Jamaica was ready to become a republic and cast off the royal family and, and move on. And it was similar in the Bahamas, where you had the Bahamas National Reparations Committee uh, delivered a strongly worded letter demanding reparations for slavery. And uh, it, basically, these uh, you've got some of these countries, again, looking like they're getting ready to, to cut ties with the United Kingdom. So this connection between the royal family and slavery, I think, is something that has come along astonishingly quickly. Uh, I don't think anyone was really making this connection. And really, in a lot of ways, it seems like it's Meghan Markle that kind of blazed the trail here, the mm. uh, Duchess of Sussex, where, like, with her accusations that the royal family is, is racist. And now those kind of accusations have become common to the point that they can't travel to Commonwealth realms without having protests and accusations that they're slave traders and, and all of this. So uh, a dramatic downhill shift in Britain's relationship with some of these Commonwealth, Commonwealth realms. Some of these quotes uh, from, uh, from the, the prominent individuals, uh, the, this, this letter that was signed by all of these these people in Jamaica to the prince that says, uh, we see no no reason to celebrate 70 years of the ascension of your grandmother to the British throne because her leadership and that of her predecessors have perpetuated the greatest human rights tragedy in the history of mankind. That's not exactly uh, open-armed hospitality from the Jamaicans to uh, the British royal family. What does this say for the future of the Commonwealth. No, it's it's not exactly an open-armed welcome. It's not even accurate by any stretch of the imagination. You kind of, you know, in this era where everyone takes offense at everything, you're surprised there aren't, you know, there are plenty more people that have that have been treated even worse. You're surprised they're not clamoring for, for having taken offense at some of this. Of course, the royal family and Britain's government led the world in outlawing slavery and banning the slave trade. It was British parliamentary, Britain's parliamentary system that really did through the Royal Navy patrolling the seas, through treaties with other nations, uh, led a global push uh, against slavery. So apparently they see nothing to celebrate in that. But uh, you're seeing this in country after country. We talked last year a fair bit about Barbados, where Barbados broke with the monarchy and became... A republic and you could really see barbados now setting the stage for several other of these members of the royal family and you, you had an article mr hillary at the time about uh what was barbados spurns britain for china the way that they you know they claim that this whole thing is about imperialism and empire but really what they're doing is moving from 
the Commonwealth to a new empire, the Chinese empire. Yep. And for Jamaica and for the Bahamas, they're going in exactly the same direction. Both countries have massive infrastructure projects that China has lent them billions of dollars for uh, a new port in, in one case. China's moving right into these countries as they push Britain out. So you're seeing this uh, a sh you know, a shift away from the royal family. The royal family is really what kind of binds the Commonwealth together. Uh, and instead, they're moving closer to to China and some of America's adversaries. We talk a lot about the prophecy of the times of the Gentiles and this shift of power from a, a British and American centered world, dominant world, to one where you have powers like China that uh, are ascendant. And uh, these nations that are pushing so hard to get out from under the umbrella of the British Commonwealth and are embracing uh, nations like China and ties to uh, to uh, basically this new world, uh, a new global economy that's dominated by Gentile nations, uh, they really don't know what they are asking for. No, and we have a, an article from Trump Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry that kind of ties ties what we're seeing with the royal family in with this times of the Gentiles kind of an angle called threatening the crown that binds Britain. Uh, you know, just talking about the role that this throne has had in unifying Britain and unifying the British Empire uh, and really having as a, a positive vision for the world. And by threatening that and moving away from that, uh, you know, they're moving to a lot of these empire, you know, the, the reason why this has been such a positive is this is a crown and a throne that has a history with God that has you know, God promised he you would have a descendant of David always ruling over uh, at least some of his people Israel. And as Mr. Armstrong proves in his book, the United States and Britain in Prophecy, uh, that is referring to the royal family that's in London. And there are because of that connection of God, not because of any you know, virtue of the British people or virtue of the royal family, but because of that connection with God, there are some blessings that have come with that connection to the royal family and that connection to Britain. And by moving away from that and to China, to these other powers, you know, they're moving away from these blessings, moving away from these countries that have a history with God, moving away from these countries that have failed to, to do what they should have done given that history, but still moving away from these countries that have had this powerful connection with God and these promises from the Bible. And that's going to bring massive curses to those nations that do that. And the rise of these nations is part of the way that God is cursing and correcting the world. Now, it's all being done in a plan to give every nation a relationship with God. God has this all very carefully worked out and is allowing this to happen. You know, he, this is all part of, he doesn't, he's not playing favorites. This is all part of a plan uh, for everybody. But you can really see how, okay, moving away from countries that have this, this biblical connection to ones that don't is going to be uh, bad news for the whole world in the short run. Threatening the Crown That Binds Britain, that's the article from Gerald Flurry. We also have an article that is in the works, should be up early next week by Mihailo Zekic on the Caribbean Commonwealth is crumbling. You can watch for that. And thank you very much for bringing that to us, Richard. To America now, the Biden administration is enacting policies that are taking major blows at the foundations of the American economy. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, Joe Biden announced a new budget request this year that would cut the deficit of the American economy in half. 
And so that initially sounds like really good news until you remember that America ran $2.7 trillion deficits during the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is still the biggest spending bill in American history, aside from the past two years when we were pumping uh, <laughs> millions of dollars, billions of dollars of COVID stimulus into the economy. And so uh, for for a time you heard people, it's like, all right, well, COVID's like this World War II level crisis that we just need to throw all this money at and then like tighten our belts and, and, and pay it back later. And uh, we definitely see that, um, as many suspected, uh, that's not going to happen. We are going to be spending a little less money than when we were giving everyone stimulus checks. But it's it's bigger it's bigger than any time any point in american history other than the two years of covid uh-huh. uh, i was looking at the uh, some of the details of this uh, just this behemoth spending bill it actually earmarks 3.6 trillion for things like social security medicare medicaid what they call the mandatory spending uh, and then seven hundred and sixty six billion for defense, three hundred and ninety six billion for interest on the national debt, uh, and then another uh eight hundred and seventy three billion for everything else. And so I think the big takeaway from those numbers is just the fact that like half the the budget is going to these things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, right. debts that America's gonna owe for for health care and welfare and and uh, retirement funds that are eating up a bigger and bigger and bigger portion of America's budget each year, which, um, like I said, you know, people who look at the long-term projections will say, it's like, okay, well, as you're spending this much on entitlements, that's really squeezing what's available to you for um, things like defense and running the government. Uh, according to according to this budget, it's not going to be too many more years before America is actually spending more on interest on the national debt than it will on on defense. Mm. Uh, I believe. Uh, no, even right now is actually that you're they're spending twenty two percent of America's entire gross domestic product and only collecting eighteen percent. So. You've got a 4% deficit, and then uh, these budget proposals that about Biden, when they put them out, they, they, they work on a 10-year time scale. And so that, that, uh, that deficit just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you go closer and closer to the end of the, the 10 years. So you've written uh, an article about this America's economy going the way of Rome that's up on the website today. And you quote Herbert W. Armstrong talking and making comparisons between uh, America's economic state and the way that it is prophesied to unfold. And the the Roman Empire, is it the Roman Empire or the Roman? Yes. The, and the Roman Empire and uh, similar economic problems that it faced before it collapsed. Yeah, because, I mean, if you... Um... There's a, a quote from a, a book by Andrew Roberts. Uh, uh, the book's called Decadent Societies, where he says, said, by the 5th century AD, men were ready to abandon Western civilization itself in order to escape the fearful load of taxes. And he's talking about like during those that final century of the Roman Empire, I mean, the, the bills that the Rome had accrued got so huge that they uh, they really ramped up the taxes on anyone who owned land. And basically to the point where like the landowners uh, 
were selling their land and and becoming landless because there were welfare programs for the poor. It was almost worth just to take the welfare program than it was to pay the taxes. And so you uh, you impoverished this empire. And then eventually when the, the taxpayers were so bled dry, they couldn't pay anything else. Uh, then you started debasing the currency that you couldn't print money digitally like back then like you do today. But the, the emperor would have you bring your coins in uh, and he'd uh, melt them down, mix them with a cheaper metal and give them back to you. <laughs> Uh, and basically created inflation. And so between the inflation and the taxation, the empire went bankrupt. And it uh, said Herbert W. Armstrong, all the way back in 1956, uh, this is what he wrote in 1956. He said, just before Rome collapsed, there was a rapid increase in taxes. Rome had grown fat and prosperous. The people sought leisure, less work, more play, idleness, and they shirked work. They began to look to the government to provide. Today, we call it doles, reliefs, pensions, government aid. When any nation begins to look to the government to provide, that nation is on a grease toboggan slide to decay and oblivion. It brought about the fall of Rome. It brought about the fall of Babylon long before. And it's bringing about the fall of America today. We're looking to the government to take care of us. And just like ancient Rome, our government has grown too big and we have a rapid increase in taxes. Uh, and so that's the quote, and you, you just wonder what he'd <laughs> what he'd say today, because like today most right. fiscal conservatives are like, we need to get back to the fiscally responsible problem uh, programs we had in the 1950s, <laughs> and then right. here he is in the, the middle of the 1950s saying that our government's way too big, our tax loads way too high, we're going the we're going the way of Rome, and then uh, in the 70 years or since then. Uh, it's just got uh, astronomically bigger. I mean, the, the debt didn't even hit a trillion dollars till the 80s, uh, and now it's $30 trillion and will blow past $32 trillion next year. And I think according to Biden's budget proposal, you'll be, uh, yeah, I mean, you'll be pushing $50 trillion by the end of the decade. So Yeah. And this really does have very catastrophic national security implications. Uh, and uh, Andrew has an article about this up today, America's Economy Going the Way of Rome. Go check that out at thetrumpet.com. Thank you for bringing that to us, Andrew. You're listening to Trumpet Hour coming up. Part of the nation of Georgia announcing a plan to become Russia. Uh, a renewal of terrorist attacks in Israel, a flood of migrants into a European enclave in Morocco, and other stories. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. We've talked about how Vladimir Putin is working to reconstitute the Soviet empire in one part of a former Soviet state. This will become reality. For this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yeah, we spoke briefly in the first half about Putin's war on the former Soviet nation of Georgia back in 2008. Uh, at that time, Putin invaded Georgia with overwhelming force, and he pushed Georgian soldiers out of two regions of the country, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, which were already sort of semi-autonomous even before that time. 
But Putin's invasion destroyed Georgia's attempts to bring these regions back under the Georgian government's control. And then he recognized them both as independent at that time. So that's been the situation in Georgia for about 14 years now. But on Wednesday, the president of South Ossetia said his government is now taking steps to make South Ossetia an official part of Russia. He said, unification with Russia is our strategic goal, our path, and the aspiration of the people. We will soon be part of the historic homeland, Russia. So this plan is on the fast track, and it means South Ossetia's 1,500 square miles could be an official part of Russia in maybe just a few weeks or months, and that's actually a, a very significant development. So why, uh, you think about what's happening right now, uh, Russia attacking Ukraine, there's a whole lot of international pressure against Russia. I think it's extraordinary that it's at this point that South Ossetia is saying, hey, we want to become part of Russia. Yeah, yeah, that's the big question. Why now? You know, for 14 years, South Ossetia has been semi-autonomous. It's been viewed by the rest of the world still to be a part of Georgia, but it's been functioning in a de facto way as a, you know, an autonomous nation that is aligned with Russia. So why, after 14 years of the, of the status quo remaining basically unchanged, is this suddenly happening? And why would it be happening when Russia's invasion of Ukraine is, you know, maybe not going as well as expected and its, its economy is being pulverized? And actually, it does look to be directly linked to the events in Ukraine, because there's been open talk from the Georgians about how right now would be the best chance they may ever have to send their forces into those two regions. And, and you know, to try to take it back. Russia's totally concentrated right now on Ukraine. Their forces for most of the rest of the country are actually in or around Ukraine. So the Georgians are saying, we may have a window right now. So there, there's been a little bit of chatter about that. And this president of South Ossetia has apparently been concerned by that. And so he's telling Putin that he's ready to make South Ossetia an official part of Russia. And that way, first of all, it would make the Georgians far less likely to risk any kind of a military campaign if, you know, if, if it's an official part of Russia. Secondly, it would guarantee the South Ossetians that if Georgia did attack, they would have Russia's full military support. There wouldn't be any sort of a question about it the way there may currently be given its kind of semi-autonomous status. All of the gray would instantly be black and white. Um, and so that's why I think South Ossetia is now trying to be fully officially absorbed into the Russian Federation. So put this in the context of, of Putin's larger aims in drawing these regions back into the Russian motherland. Sure, yes. We've often spoken about how one of his main goals is to basically rebuild the Soviet empire. And we have an article from our May-June 2021 issue of the Philadelphia Trumpet. It's called Putin and the Greatest Catastrophe. And it's all about him, you know, rebuilding the old Soviet empire. It goes through prophecies in the books of Revelation and Ezekiel, especially just kind of showing the role that Putin was prophesied to play at the helm of, of a kind of a resurgent Russia. It also chronicles a lot of what Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has written about Putin over the years, especially his goal of rebuilding the Soviet Union. So I think that uh, article is, is a really good one for listeners to check out right now, not just in light of Putin now being on the verge of bringing a big chunk of Georgia back into his control, but also with this war on Ukraine going on. He's, he's got a lot of irons in the fire. And this article, I think, would help readers to understand just the real significance of, of all of that. Great. Putin and the greatest catastrophe. Thanks for that, Jeremiah. 
Terrorist attacks in Israel this week remind us that this volatile area is never far from the threat of violence, perhaps especially when peace negotiations are going on. For this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal. Yes, there were multiple attacks uh, inside Israel. You probably heard of one, two or three of them that involved in the actual Israelis dying. Um, but there were, I think, maybe a half dozen even uh, separate different, separate attacks with some just people being wounded. But the three main ones, one of them, the first one took place a week ago uh, down in the south of Israel in Beersheba. And this one involved a, a somebody wielding a knife, killing uh, four or five Israelis with a knife until he was eventually shot. And he was just at a supermarket and then outside of the supermarket. And then you had two policemen being shot uh, with a with a weapon um, at Hadera, which is central Israel towards the coast. And then finally, you had a another, uh, an Arab getting an M16, a hold of an M16 coming from the West Bank through a, a hole in the security fence and on in a stolen car. And then going into Bene Brak, which is a neighborhood in, in the eastern part of Tel Aviv, and just shooting bystanders or people in the streets. And it is, it is kind of shocking because we haven't really seen this level of violence in some time. People are talking about it, this being the, the largest terrorist wave in terms of deaths of Israelis, 11 Israelis killed in the past week in three separate attacks uh, since the Second Intifada. So this is pretty serious. And, and I think... In some ways, looking at it, it is a little bit different because you have two of these attacks took were, were Israeli Arabs. These are Israelis. These are Arabs that are Israelis. They're not just coming from the West Bank. They are Arabs living amongst Israelis. There and there is a huge amount of of weaponry that exists in this segment of society. Uh, it's harder to get an automatic weapon. Uh, if unless you make it, uh, or it's much harder if you come from the West Bank. But you know, police are talking about how the, there's over a hundred thousand weapons that have been stolen from IDF bases and police stations in the last decade, and we there those weapons are unaccounted for, and they're probably in this segment of society. And so it's very dangerous for Israel because it's not just about clamping down on all the borders that enter into Israel from the West Bank, all the checkpoints, having greater checks, things like that. Because how do you keep out the Israeli Arabs that are that are, that are your next door neighbors from, from such an attack? It, it does seem like it's been a while since we uh, experienced anything like this, certainly on this scale, suddenly three attacks in a single week. What's behind the timing of this, do you think? It has, It is very hard to pinpoint it exactly why it all happened together. I think the fact that there are two of them were two of these major attacks were done by Israeli Arabs is significant. You'll remember last year around this time in May, actually. So just a month from uh, 11 months ago, that's when we had that massive uh, war, all this barrage of rockets that came from Hamas for 11 days firing on Israel. And that was really precipitated by events that took place inside Jerusalem um involving you know those those houses that people thought uh, that Israelis were evicting uh, Arabs from living in them when it was really just about rent payments they were getting out of hand and I, I think you know at that time it was Ramadan also and everyone's a little bit worried that Ramadan starts today and that there's going to be a, another kind of month of danger uh, for Israeli citizens uh, it is interesting just looking at 
what was the scene last year? What were we talking about last year about this time? We were talking about how there was a uh, an issue that was blown out of proportion, the issue involving Sheikh Jarrah and these houses that the international community led by the United States was basically saying to Israel, you are provoking attacks by booting out of Arabs from these homes. And Israel came back and said, they just didn't pay their rent uh-huh. to Israeli Israeli um, owners of these properties and they haven't paid it for 30 years. That's what we're doing. Right. But it really did show that the United States would put pressure on Israel. And then, you know, you had the massive riots on the Temple Mount, Hamas flags everywhere. And then you had the mobilization, Hamas flags all through Israel proper amongst the Israeli Arabs, they were getting involved. And then you had the barrage of war. And so you had these three different factors. You had the United States that was really blowing up a situation uh, and making it blowing it out of proportion, coming down hard on the on the on the Arab side and blaming the Israelis. And then you had the Palestinian Arab response and the Iranian response to that. And you have a similar situation as we talked in the first half. You had um you had Blinken there at this at this meeting with these other uh, foreign ministers, Arabs and his and then Israelis foreign minister uh, down in the south of Israel. And all the others were talking about Iran, and Blinken was there talking about talking about Israel. This is one quote from Blinken, uh, right down there. This is what he said. He said, "Peace should be promoted." He said through quote working to prevent actions on all sides that could raise tensions, including settlement expansion, settler violence. Then he says incitement to violence, demolitions, payments to individuals convicted of terrorism, evictions of families from homes they've lived in for decades. This statement from Blinken was so similar to the one that was released by the United States State Department that directly precipitated the outbreak of violence by Israeli Arabs and Hamas on Israelis about this time last year. And I'm not saying it's all connected, but the timing is certainly interesting that you have United States in the present, in the present in the region blaming israel for extremist attacks on jews and then you have more jews being killed by israeli arabs so i don't know what we see going forward in the next month towards ramadan but i think you have a similar confluence of factors that we saw take place last year well we always have to uh, stay tuned to what is going on in jerusalem uh, because of its centrality in end-time biblical prophecy, uh, where would you send people to uh, better understand the significance of events like the ones we've seen this this week? Yeah, I think they can go to an article that we wrote last year talking about all these different factors coming together and the violence that happens and where it's leading. And this article is entitled, Is the Fall of East Jerusalem Imminent? All right. Thank you for that, Brent. A wave of migrants flooded a Spanish enclave in Morocco, highlighting the ongoing issue with immigration faced by Europe. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, I think over the weeks and months ahead, we're probably going to be seeing more and more about uh, Europe in North Africa. We kind of spoke last week a bit about uh, Europe needing more alternatives for fuel if it's not going to get it from Russia, that's going to draw it into North Africa. Uh, this is a, another reminder that came from earlier this month that things like the migrant crisis have not gone away, where you had a, a tidal wave of over 2,000 migrants trying to get their, break their way into uh, Spain's enclave that they have uh, within North Africa. Uh, I think about 800 managed to enter, and that compares to over just over 1,000 that entered that enclave 
all during 2021. So uh, there's a, a growing demand or, or a growing push from, from people in the area to try and get into Europe. Of course, right now, you've also got about 3.5 million Ukrainian immigrants that have come into Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think that Ukrainian migrants coming into Europe would have quite the same effect as you saw with, say, Syrian migrants uh, several years ago. You know, they're, they're uh, in general, they are much more highly trained. Uh, there's going to be much less of a culture clash. But at the same time, they are still kind of, there's only so much money. There's only so many resources. They are straining the resources of a lot of European countries to deal with this. Then you've also got the potential, though, still for migrants to come across from uh, from North Africa. Just because Ukraine is in the news, it doesn't mean all of these problems in North Africa and, and in the Middle East have gone away. You've got a news story this week about Russia sending more equipment to Mali, for example. So you, you've got even the potential for Europe and Russia kind of uh, uh, fighting it out a bit for who gets control of some of these different countries. So there is the potential for uh, more of a migrant crisis and certainly another draw for Europe to get more involved in this region. Yeah, I think that that's a a great way to uh, frame what's happening here. And we do just need to continually watch uh, for those uh, Europe, European incursions into North Africa and the Middle East because of uh, how much biblical prophecy uh, emphasizes that in um, end-time events. Uh, we do have an article about this Euro- uh, Spanish enclave overwhelmed by wave of migrants by Daniel DeSanto. That went up on the website two days ago, and you can check that out at thetrumpet.com. We'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you very much for that, Richard. Federal officials in the United States have actually ruled that Hillary Clinton used the Steele dossier illegally. Uh, To learn about this, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this is a pretty big story. This is really the first uh, small uh, but still legitimate admission of guilt on the part of the Democratic National uh, Commission and the Clinton campaign. Uh, they're fining the Clinton campaign $8,000 and the, the DNC $105,000 for basically failing to disclose who they were paying money to. And now, uh, I guess kind of in a nutshell, just to remind our readers how this happened, is that uh, back when the uh, the Clinton campaign was looking to uh, frame Donald Trump for collusion with Russia, they uh, they spent uh, a considerable amount of money, I think about um, oh, $175,000 on the part of the Clinton campaign and uh, $849,000 on the part of the DNC that they gave to this law firm, Perkins Coie. Then Perkins Coie gave that money over to another company called Fusion GPS, which then paid uh, the former British uh, agent Christopher Steele uh, to get in contact with some uh, some Russian uh, some Russians he knew and put together basically this this bogus dossier of unverified rumors about. Donald Trump, and then they use that for uh, the Mueller investigation and all sorts of pro- uh, projects to take down the Trump campaign. And now they've uh, been many investigations since then to say that like Christopher Steele's Russian sources were actually not getting their information from Russia so much as they were getting their information from the Clinton campaign. And so the Clinton campaign was basically just laundering this rumors to someone who grew up in Russia uh, 
so that he could say it back to them, and it looked like it was coming from Russia. That's not particularly what this lawsuit is about, the the false allegations, but it, this is about just the fact that when uh, when the Clinton campaign and the DNC gave that money to uh, Perkins Coie, they, they didn't, um, in the grant, <laughs> they didn't uh, specify what the money was for, because the money was for giving Diffusion GPS to give them to Christopher Steele to put together this dossier. So they tried to keep like three degrees of removal between Clinton herself and this Steele dossier. But the money was meant to come up with these false rumors. And by not uh, specifying what the money was for, it made it much harder to track. I mean, eventually we now have tracked it down and found out that like, okay, no, you're, you're, spending this money to like not dig up dirt but to create dirt mm -hmm. and by not uh you, you and you violated federal law by not specifying what the money was for and so the uh the uh the federal elections commission is fining clinton for that and uh, so that's a, that's a positive sign in one in one hand uh hopefully this goes bigger places with this because it's kind of like i don't know they when, when they finally arrested al capone they arrested him on tax evasion <laughs> which is probably the least bad thing he ever did uh it's like this like okay you're you're fining them for failing to specify what the money was for in violation yeah. of a minor statute for the Federal Elections Commission uh, instead of, like, fining them or imprisoning them for treason. Treason or creating <laughs> or, yeah, creating false information. It's your <laughs> – but the fact that the Clinton administration is paying the 8000 Yeah, although it, they it, haven't ad admitted any wrongdoing uh, – I mean, I guess you could look at paying eight thousand dollars as somewhat of an admission of guilt, but they're not coming out and and uh, saying anything. Like, I it, it it is just remarkable. It's good. It's good that there's. Uh, it's on the books. It's it's on the record that they they did uh, wrongdoing here. But it is it is stunning to think that if the if they're thinking that this is going to prevent similar abuses from taking place in the future. Uh, that have major impact on uh, national elections. Like this is, this is you know this is going to stop the uh, Democratic National right. uh, uh, Party from ever trying to steal election again. It's just laughable. Yeah, and the other big thing, um, the other big thing with this is uh, at the same time, I mean, Donald Trump has filed a lawsuit for something like seventy million mm -hmm. against Hillary Clinton for the Steele dossier. And so uh, I've seen some news sources, New American, maybe a couple others that are <laughs> at least hopeful and maybe optimistically hopeful that this FSC case will help will help Trump's lawyers in their right bigger case to say that, like, I was like, OK, well, they have actually already paid money for doing some of these things to try to make the bigger case that they've uh, to get the 70 million for the, the treason committed. Yeah. Yes, well, uh, work continues. Uh, Gerald Flurry's book, uh, America Under Attack, is uh, con continually underway here. We're going to try to finish this, uh, at least get this off to press within uh, the next, uh, I don't know how long it's going to take. We're working really hard to, uh, to get this finished, but uh, there's a whole lot of information in there just showing the evidence of how deep the corruption and the wrongdoing was on the part of uh, the Clintons and the Democratic Party and ultimately Barack Obama. 
Thank you very much for that, Andrew. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctigal. And thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Richard Epstein. The study of human institutions is always a search for the most tolerable imperfections. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.